welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. There are, across the national park system, a number of units that have experienced near record and record visitation over the past 18 months or so. The coronavirus pandemic has spurred an outpouring of humanity into the outdoors as we seek fresh air and room to roam instead of being sequestered at home. The 2020 rush to places such as Yellowstone and Grand Teton, Rocky Mountain, Acadia, and Cape Hatteras National Seashore at the time were seen as something of an aberration, a somewhat isolated blip in national park visitation caused by the pandemic. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. The crowds that have been flowing into the national park system since the COVID pandemic took hold of the country have been impressive. During 2020, the count from 383 of more than 400 units of the national park system was officially recorded as 237 million. That was down from 2019, when more than 327 million visitors were counted in the park system. But 2020 visitation was greatly impacted by COVID, which closed a good number of parks for a while, some throughout the entire year. Still, the visitors came. This year, most parks have been open all year, and the visitation has surged. At Grand Teton National Park, for example, 2021 has, to put it bluntly, been crazy busy. In September, the park counted 570,584 visitors, the second highest tally for that month in park history. Notably, that count represented a 10% increase over 2019. It also pushed the park's year-to-date visitation to 3,493,937, a record for an entire year, with October, November, and December yet to come. The previous yearly high for visitation was 2018, when Grand Teton recorded 3,491,151 recreational visits. To explore this crush of visitation, we've reached out to Grand Teton Superintendent Chip Jenkins. We'll be back in a moment with the superintendent. Western National Parks Association is a nonprofit education partner of the National Park Service. WNPA supports parks across the West, developing products, services, and programs that enhance the visitor experience, understanding, and appreciation of national parks. Learn more at WNPA.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. That's P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Nova Scotia, 8,000 miles of coastline dotted with colorful fishing villages quaint coastal towns, and an abundance of scenic natural beauty. Home to two national parks, Cape Breton Highlands and Kejimakujik. Spend your nights under a canopy of twinkling stars. Spend your days exploring trails, beaches, historical waterways, and tons of cultural and recreational experiences. Visit NovaScotia.com today to start planning your natural getaway. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio it is an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. 
The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Gauging visitation across the National Park System is always a challenge. It ebbs and flows, depending on the month and the weather. But it certainly seems to be in a growth mode for some of the larger parks. To try to gain an understanding of what's going on at Grand Teton National Park and what the impacts of growing visitation are, we're joined by Superintendent Chip Jenkins. Welcome to The Traveler, Chip. Hi, Kurt. Thanks for uh, inviting me on. I appreciate you making the time. Now, Chip, you came to Grand Teton early this year from Mount Rainier National Park, another extremely popular park that had its own visitation pains. But did you ever expect to see the kind of recreational turnout that Grand Teton has seen this year? I guess I would have to say that, yes, I was expecting, you know, I, I was, in part because um, just uh, like most superintendents, I'm paying attention to what's going on around the National Park Service, what's happening in other units, whether it's, at, you know, from Acadia to Zion to Rocky to Yellowstone. And so I had a sense of what, uh, you know, of what was going on, but certainly learning the details is happening. Yeah, it's one thing to, to watch from a distance. It's another thing to, to, to watch from the, the visitor center and hit park headquarters as they, they stream into Moose. Absolutely. Now, to, to put some perspective on Grand Teton's visitation this year, back in 1985, I was working for the Associated Press based in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And one of the assignments took me to Grand Teton, where Marshall Jingery, at the time the park's assistant superintendent, told me the parks were being loved to death. That year, 1985, Grand Teton recorded 1,334,483 recreational visits, or roughly one-third of the number that your park could close out 2021 with. If we were loving Grand Teton to death in 1985 with a third of this year's visitation, what can we make of the impact of those 3.5 million or so visitors that Grand Teton has seen so far this year? Uh, that is a great question, Kurt, and I think one of the uh, fundamental to the questions that I'm asking having arrived here, which is we're, uh, we are trying to do a better job of assessing what this level of visitation is meaning to the park, what it means and from everything in terms of our operations to what it means on um, our resources, including the resource of visitor experience. And some of that information we have, it's clearer than, uh, than others. Um, part of what we're experiencing is a substantial, it's not just about the numbers, it's about uh, changes in behavior. It's changes in the way that people are visiting. Um, I think probably the most obvious is uh, while it's clear, you know, our history has been clear in terms of visitation, uh, a large, you know, the large part of the visitation between the 1st of July and Labor Day, what we're seeing is actually that it, the seasons extended. We're seeing our largest growth in visitation is actually happening in March, April, and May. 
Wow. So we're becoming that that peak season is becoming substantially longer. And that has enormous ramifications on our uh, on our operations. Um, now, before we go too much further, I'm curious about the the tallies that you guys keep in terms of visitors, recreational visitors. I mean, you've got a major U.S. highway going through your park, uh, 191, 89, and I think it's 26, um, the three routes all in one. Do you count visitors along the highway or, or through the Moose Entrance Station and the other entrance stations? How, how do you get a firm count? Um, yes to all of those. Right. We uh, <laughs> we we uh, we count our visitation in a number of different places. It's in the it, it's through the uh, through the state highway, through the entrance gates. We actually also have um, over 40 uh, trail counters where we're counting people under the backcountry. And so we're um, we compile information from a lot of different places. This is one of the few parks that we actually have a full time permanent social scientist on staff. Uh, Dr. Jennifer Newton, and she works very closely uh, with our uh, National Park Service Statistics Office in terms of how that the visitor count information is compiled. How do your backcountry trail counters work? Is it is it an individual or is it something else? Uh, we have uh, yeah no it's individ- it's uh, kind of the classic trail counter in terms of it's a light beam that you walk through and it counts the number of folks who go by. Jen Newton uh, works together with. A longtime park volunteer used to be an employee uh, who is retired uh, on uh, running the trail counters uh, where they uh, go out, uh, not just install them, but calibrate them and check on the accuracy multiple times through the year in terms of collecting that information. Interesting. Now, for instance, this year, um, my wife and I were up in Yellowstone paddling Yellowstone Lake. Um, We stopped in Grand Teton both on the way up and the way back. On the way back, um, we took a walk out to the Cunningham Cabin. Were we counted? Yes, you were counted, right? And and part of that is the calibration of, uh, part of it is uh, uh, the calibration in terms of, uh, you know, as a visitor who goes to Yellowstone, a visitor who comes through uh, Grand Teton, uh, counted in terms of going through the south entrance gate of Yellowstone, through the Moran entrance gate. And then depending upon, not every destination in the park, but many of the locations in the park, we have both vehicle counters as well as trail counters. Interesting. Interesting. And so what we have is a lot of that raw data. Part of what we are, a big part of uh, what we have done this summer is um, through a contract is where we are doing a uh, visitor mobility study. So what uh, what we're doing right now is an analysis where we are trying to get more detailed understanding about how people arrive at the park, where they go, how long they spend. That is something that other parks like Yosemite and Yellowstone and Acadia have done previously. Grand Teton had not previously done that. And so we're, we're doing that for the first time and uh, are aiming to have the results of that study uh, late winter, early spring. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see. I know, um, you know, a lot of people go to Grand Teton, go to Yellowstone, people go to Yellowstone, go to Grand Teton. And it'll be curious to, to learn if, if Grand Teton was the main destination or was it the, the add-on. At the same time, you know, Cam Shalley up in Yellowstone was saying, uh, telling me the other week that the average visitor to Yellowstone stays 3.2 days 
which really kind of amazes me for such a, a park as Yellowstone. Do you have a feel for how long people stay at Grand Teton? We, um, we, that, that is part of the information that we're trying to figure out. We do not have that as a fact-based or data-based information, and we're trying to get that, both through a combination of the visitor mobility study, but we're also one of 23 parks uh, that have been selected for a national program to do a comprehensive socioeconomic study, uh, and that will be done next uh, June and July here in Teton. But what I can tell you is, you know, it's it's being the new guy here, it's been pretty interesting because there's a whole bunch of people who have a perception that people drive to or fly to Jackson Hole, spend a night, spend part of the day in Grand Teton and then go up to Yellowstone and spend time there and then leave the area or, or do that in reverse. And so there's this, among some people, there is this strong perception that the vast majority of people visit both parks uh, and may stay for a modest period of time. What I hear from the Jackson Hole Chamber of Commerce is the data that they have is that people stay on average four and a half days in Jackson. And they have the perception that while they are base camping out of Jackson Hole or some of the neighboring communities, Pinedale, Driggs, Victor, and they venture up and go to Yellowstone for a day, they spend a day in Grand Teton, and then they spend two and a half days doing other things in the Jackson Hole area, where most of those, the Tetons serve as a backdrop for, uh, for much of what they're doing. So again, it's trying to, um, it's trying to sort, that, sort that out. A little bit of information that we have is just some social science information that was done at our Lupin Meadows Trailhead uh, this summer. People self-reported that 45% of the people who visited the Lupin Meadows Trailhead said that they also will visit Yellowstone on their trip. But, you know, that means that 55% of the people who were there are only here in, in at Grand Teton or Jackson Hole. What that means for us in terms of managing visitation, we haven't figured that out yet. It's interesting, you know, over the years running The Traveler, um, we've had readers reach out and saying, hey, we're going to Grand Teton, Yellowstone, and Glacier for a week. You know, what, what would you suggest? And And I suggest get rid of two of those parks and focus on one of them because they're all wondrous places that have much to um, to offer in terms of recreational and, and cultural and historic information. I think that's also part of what we're trying to figure out is what we know that there's a lot of people that are coming on their first trip. Again, we have a perception that people, when they return on their second, third or fourth trip, that perhaps they're staying longer in one place. And again, what's that mix, right? And what is it that we need to be able to provide folks who are the first time short visitor versus people who are here looking for a deeper, richer experience? There's certainly a lot to lot to soak up in, in Grand Teton. Now, um, getting back to your, your visitation this year, in um, a release that your staff sent out, a press release um, concerning um, this summer, 2021, it noted that trail use increased approximately 29% compared to 2019. Yeah. And compared to five years ago, trail use has increased approximately 49%. Yeah. Those are pretty impressive, if not downright staggering numbers. Yeah. What kind of impact is that having? I mean, you know, how, how is the Jenny Lake area, which is your most popular destination, I believe, in Grand Teton, held up to that? I mean, more than $20 million was spent on the area in recent years 
to restore its trails, its bridges, and its key destinations. And, and no small thanks to uh, Grand Teton National Park Foundation, which really did some heavy lifting and fundraising. But, you know, that area, um, the Jenny Lake area, the, um, the trail system above the lake, had suffered from decades and decades of crowds, crowds that the Civilian Conservation Corps couldn't anticipate when the trail system was initially completed. What, what kind of impact are those increase in trail users having on the park? Yeah, let me actually start in a different place, which is that, that it goes to that, uh, that observation that it's not just about increasing number, but also that people are behaving differently. So we're seeing for the increase in visitation, um, we're seeing a far greater increase in the number of people who are going hiking and going on the trails, right? So, uh, and I also, uh, you know, will will point out, I think that that may be one of the differences between, for example, Grand Teton and Yellowstone, is that many of our places where people want to go, like Jenny Lake or Lupin Meadows or Taggart, um, they're not necessarily destinations unto themselves, but they're actually launching points into the backcountry, right? They're trailheads to get to going uh, to going elsewhere. So again, this is part of part of what we're trying to understand in terms of the differences and the challenges with the uh, you know with the visitation that we have. Now at Jenny Lake, what I you know what I observed this summer, what we're in uh, is it's built into the DNA of the National Park Service that part of the way that we manage visitation is that we. Uh, designate areas and we harden them in order to be able to to be able to support higher levels of visitation. And on the Jenny Lake, where the where much of the Grand Teton Foundation project uh, happened, the pl- the interpretive plaza and the visitor contact station and the boat dock and the trails along that shore, uh, the the um, eastern shore really actually are holding up very well because they were designed for a, a substantially larger uh, level of visitation than the park had been able to uh, manage uh, previously. I think where, where we're seeing challenges is over on the west side, you know, where either you take the boat over or you hike the uh, two miles around over to Inspiration Point. And again, where the trail was reconstructed and Inspiration Point kind of defined, uh, created a defined area, but we certainly are seeing, um, uh, and, and the, I think the thing that is the greatest thing that, that has been reported to us is we're just seeing, you know, increase in terms of human waste. And part of what we're, uh, part of what we're doing this fall is, is that we're doing after action reviews, uh, collecting information from our employees about what they saw and experienced this summer. Uh, actually, Jen Newton, our social scientist, created a field reporter for all of our employees, accessible by all of our employees to be able to input information about challenges and problems that they saw. And Jen and an interdisciplinary team is in the process right now of evaluating that information. Yeah, interesting. And you expect that data to come out uh, later this winter? Yes. Yeah. And I think it's uh, and we will use that, uh, you know, going forward. What I'm telling folks is that we need to be planning on at least three different timescales simultaneously. Part of what we have to do is that we have to be thinking about next summer, 2022. What is it that we can be putting in place next summer, which, you know, frankly, on that timescale, it's working, working on things like public information, signage, uh, things to be able to try to influence people's behavior. Then we need to be working on perhaps the next five years. Those are the kinds of things that are maybe policy changes, longer term, uh, medium term planning. Then we need to be working on 15, you know, 10 to 15 to 20 years, which those are 
more substantial infrastructure, uh, longer term policy changes. And so, um, and again, it's not, we, we need to be um, uh, practiced and adept at working at all three of those timescales in order to be able to try to influence and adapt to what's going on. Yeah, quite a challenge. We're talking today with Chip Jenkins, the superintendent of Grand Teton National Park, which is uh, on pace to really set a record for visitation for one year. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference too at friendsofacadia.org. Hey everyone, our partner Interior Federal Credit Union is offering a great deal to their members. Now through October 31st, 2021, get up to $500 in closing costs with a new home equity loan. Apply at interiorfcu.org for membership and a loan. Membership is required. Equal housing lender. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. All right, we're back with Chip Jenkins, the superintendent of the Grand Teton National Park. Chip, so it sounds like um, the trail systems and, and uh, the front country visitation areas are, are holding up pretty well to, to the increased traffic. Is that safe to say? Uh, well, what I would say is the places that have been designed and constructed, like Jenny Lake, the plaza whatnot have held up well. I don't want to short sell, though. You know, at Jenny Lake, what we saw this year was um, not only did the parking lot start to fill by 8.30 or 9 o'clock in the morning, but then we wound up with parking along uh, the Inner Park Road for up to two miles along that, uh, uh, along that stretch, of, uh, stretch of road. We saw places like at Lupin Meadows, where we have a uh, trailhead, which has maybe 130, 150 parking spaces, and we had upwards of 400 cars parked there, um, Taggart Lake. And, uh, trailhead. Similarly, uh, we had so many uh, folks visiting uh, visiting those places that our bathrooms became overwhelmed. So we actually had to rent, uh, you know, a number of porta potties in order to be able to have those at different trailheads in order to be able to handle uh, handle human waste. And 
actually wound up in the situation where the um, the company that rents those porta potties, as a result of um, uh, their own staffing shortages, were having a hard time even maintaining keeping up with the maintenance of them. Wow! Yeah, it's it's certainly been a tough year for staffing throughout the economy. Mm-hmm. Now, a, a few weeks back, I talked with Dr. Joel Berger, a wildlife biologist who has traveled the world studying animals in their natural settings. He currently is working on a book regarding how human recreation is impacting wildlife. Mm. Can you point to any situations at Grand Teton where this growth in human visitation has uh, affected the parks of bears, antelope, moose, bison, other wildlife? I'll tell you, that is a great question because I think, you know, I think for many, many years, for decades, really, there was this uh, thought or this belief that non-consumptive recreation uh, was uh, green or was not impactful uh, on the landscape. And particularly in recent years, what we have come to see is is that the scope and scale of, uh, uh, of recreation, hiking, skiing, mountain biking, has now become so large in terms of both not just numbers but geographic extent that uh, we need to have a much better understanding about what that means in terms of, uh, in particular, wildlife. Here in Grand Teton, we've had a interagency work group uh, that has been looking at what are the steps that are needed in order to, to preserve the uh, Teton bighorn sheep uh, population. Um, it's kind of an interesting story. The Teton bighorn sheep used to overwinter down in the in, in Jackson Hole at the valley bottom. Uh, but through decisions that were made over the last uh, 100, 120 years, they no longer have access to low elevation winter habitat. So in kind of a crazy adaptation, they have moved to, the, to some of the most harshest conditions in the, uh, in the area. They, they now overwinter at the very summit of the ridgelines where persistent winds uh, blow the snowpack uh, off and they are able to access food. And what's happened in the last 10 years, but really accelerated in the last five years is that advances in ski and snowboarding technology, in skills, in knowledge, uh, in ability, we now see people regularly and routinely able to access that terrain to be able to ski and ride. Uh, So just earlier this uh, last week, uh, this interagency work group doing a collaborative process for the last four years have made a series of recommendations proposing additional closures at high elevation from December through April uh, in order to be able to protect the bighorn sheep from winter recreationists. And we're going through the process right now of evaluating those recommendations and trying to determine what we want to do. It's also very interesting because this is really serving as a catalyst for a conversation within the backcountry skier and rider community about what does it mean to be a conservationist and a skier and rider. I'll tell you, we will, you know, we all need, whether it's the Park Service, Forest Service, BLM communities, we need a much better understanding, uh, you know, much more research going into uh, how we can all be recreating responsibly and and coexist, you know, on, on this landscape where people can, you know, be feeding their souls and their spirits by recreating, but also know that they're recreating in concert with the species that also live on the landscape. 
No, it's interesting, the, the recommendations for additional winter closures um, up in Canada at Jasper National Park. They have instituted longer seasonal closures through the winter to protect the um, the caribou numbers, the southern mountain caribou numbers in Jasper National Park because, you know, they're concerned that without action, the two caribou herds that um, remain entirely within Jasper will, will disappear. And right. so... Um, yeah, it, it's good to see all these people out in the national parks enjoying the parks and appreciating the parks and what they offer. But at the same time, it's a tricky situation when you're talking about, you know, natural um, habitats and whatnot. And, and as you mentioned, with uh, improving technology, people can go farther right. into the backcountry. I mean, it's the it's the combination of technology, not, you know, knowledge for handed down from one person to another in terms of places to go, you know. So it's, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes that technology um, works against the user. I know um, in Utah, I was talking to a, a forest service uh, backcountry officer once, and, and he said the problem with the, the technology was it was evolving more quickly than the user's ability. And so people were finding themselves in situations that they couldn't handle and had to be rescued or, or worse. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Now, Chip, anyone who has read The Traveler for a while or, or closely listened to our podcasts know that I have brought up the need for parks to implement hard caps on visitation. Has that time come for, for Grand Teton at least? Uh, well, you know, it's, it's an interesting conversation, right? I mean, I think part, um, actually the starting point, I think, is actually from a different place in terms of what, you know, what is it that we're trying to achieve and what are the tools in order to be able to get there? I also think, uh, it's important to recognize that uh, places like Grand Teton, as well as other parks, are have a long tradition of very actively managing uh, managing the the number of people who are visiting in different ways. There is a finite number of hotel rooms. There's a finite number of campgrounds. Um, there's a, there is a capacity in terms of our uh, wilderness and backcountry sites. Uh, there's a number of uh, permits that are issued for uh, overnight climbing on the Grand Teton. We manage, we limit the number of boat shuttles uh, and the, therefore the number of people who can go across Jenny Lake on the, uh, on the boat to access the trailhead. Um, there is a carrying capacity for the Lawrence S. Rockefeller Reserve, and we manage for that carrying capacity by managing the, the parking lot at the, um, at the LSR. So there are, um, there are a variety of different ways that actually we're managing to a you know, finite number of um, uh, folks accessing in different ways. The, the geography, the layout of Grand Teton with a major highway that goes through it with um, uh, with the fact that a, a significant percentage of people who are coming here are looking to access trailheads and that those trailheads are geographically dispersed. I think that the path forward may be, may, may be um, strategies for how we manage at those trailheads rather than a strategy in terms of how we manage the total number of people in the park. You know, you mentioned that there's a, a finite finite capacity um, for lodging in, in Jackson Hole Valley and in the park and the campgrounds and whatnot. And yet you've seen already roughly two-thirds more visitors than were seen in 1985. And I don't think there's been that much capacity increase in, in lodging. You've got, 
you know, parking lots that can't handle the cars. And so you've got streams of cars along park roads, and I'm guessing probably creeping up onto, you know, beyond the shoulder and doing some resource damage. You've got human waste um, on the west side of Jenny Lake. And, you you know, a picture that the, the park sent out with the, the visitation showed the, the line of people shoulder to shoulder practically working their way around Jenny Lake. I mean, so you've got both resource damage and, and certainly the visitor use has to be impacted by all this. I think that, uh, and that is part of what we're trying to get a handle on is the is an under understanding in a, in a more quantitative and qualitative way um, the details of where we are of the uh, problems that we have and the uh, scope and scale of those, both in time of time and extent. So, for example, you know that. Uh, um, yep, there are times on the trail around Jenny Lake when there are a lot of people on that trail. Is that two hours a day? Is it six hours a day? Is it longer than that? And what is it that people are, you know, um, what is it that people are feeling about that experience? Um, how, how is it in terms of uh, uh, the, the visitor experience that is um, affected? The park does not have that data. Um, yet, we launched a large effort this last summer to be able to collect that information and that data so that we have something um, so that we have something uh, to go on in terms of trying to make informed recommendations and alternatives going forward rather than just individuals' perceptions of what the situation is. And part of it is we're fo- we're trying to follow in the footsteps of what, um, several other parks have done and what they have learned, right? Mm-hmm. So that uh, places like Rocky or Zion or Acadia or Yosemite and Yellowstone have um, have done uh, a bunch of this research uh, and have the information in order to be able to make informed planning and alternatives. We don't yet have that, and I'm trying to put that in place. Does the Park Service have a responsibility to try and craft the visitor experience. Um, some years ago, I was talking to Jeff Bradybaugh down at Zion National Park when they were really starting on the, the, the tip of the wave that has over overwhelmed the park to some degree. And he was telling me about people going up uh, the, the Virgin River through the Temple of Sinawava with boom boxes and holding dance parties. And he didn't think that was an appropriate way to experience that incredible natural setting. Cassius Cash over at Great Smoky Mountains was of the the opposite opinion that you know people should be able to experience the park in the way that they want to experience. Any any philosophy on that? You know, I have to say, I have to say that I'm uh, I think it's situation for me for for me I think it's situational. So at Grand at Grand Teton we have a place called String Lake where. Folks from the local community, as well as other visitors, like to go there, um, particularly like to go there after work uh, to be able to. Um, uh, it's a relatively shallow lake. The water is warm. It's a nice place to be able to hang out and uh, with family and friends, be able to, uh, you know, paddle around or swim, uh, swim in the water. And, yeah, people are, uh, you know, people are showing up with, uh, you know, inflatable toys and. Uh, uh, and making, uh, you know, it's like a, a, you know, picnic dinner. Um, and what we are seeing is a greater, div- 
our perception is, and again, I don't have the data on this, which I'm interested in, but our perception is, is that that is serving as a gateway for diverse communities that may not otherwise have felt welcome in the park before to be able to come and connect to the place. Now, having that kind of activity there, I think that's different than being nine miles back in the wilderness where uh, the kind of activity would be disruptive to other people who are trying to have a wilderness experience. So I think I, I think it's somewhat contextual uh, mm-hmm. and uh, it's not just about what uh, your experience is having, but what your experience you're having on the park, including the resource of visitor experience, uh, other people's um, experience. Does that, yeah. did that, did that make sense? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, kind of situational. Um, yeah. And I think it is, you know, I'm thinking a lot about and talking a lot about how we have, you know, we have a changing society. We have a changing, um, we have a changing population. And how is it that we can be of service to people in terms of helping them find meaning and connect to these natural areas? And if you look, my perspective is, and there are other people who are who are scholars who probably have more informed opinion, you know, about this, but you know, the the there were, you know, a hundred years ago, the way that people came and recreated in in parks and they found their meaning, meaning, yeah, they, you know, unfortunately people would do stuff like, you know put fish in the geysers or, you know, boil water in the geysers for, or they would, you know, have grandstands and feed the bears or they push stuff off, you know, uh, a glacier point for, for entertainment. Right. It wasn't too many years ago when somebody tried to boil a chicken in uh, one of the Shoshone geyser basin. um, Yeah. Right. And, and, and our ethics, our norm, our concept of, you know, our concept of how people should, um, experience parks have, you know, have changed, right? Have evolved from that time. I'll, you know, just in my lifetime as working for the park service, you know, it was, you know, it was uh, the way people would experience it was through uh, using their 35 millimeter camera and Kodachrome in order to be able to take photographs, or maybe they would, uh, uh, you know, write in a paper journal and maybe they would carry a, uh, guitar or a music, you know, a musical instrument and play music, you know, today, the version of that today is, you know, you do all of that on this thing, right. On an, on a phone. And and I know that there's, you know, there's a great deal of, you know, from some people, there's a great deal of concern about the, about the prevalence of technology in the backcountry. yet, you know, for, uh, for my sons who are avid climbers and skiers and backpackers and feel a you know, a, a, a intense connection to the, uh, you know, to the natural world, their experience is enhanced by using these things. Mm. So there's all, there's also a concern out there that the, the, the prevalence of, of the smartphone with the, the cameras is the, um, Counting coup, if you will, I'm going to go into Grand Teton and snap a quick picture and move on without appreciating Grand Teton. Uh, and we've seen, you know, the Graham effect. You know, we we have places like Delta Lake and Jump Rock where visitation has substantially both changed and increased. And uh, the sense is, is that that is a direct result of uh, people wanting to uh instagram or snapchat their experience there 
Yeah. And it is driven. The, the belief is, is that it is driven visitation to sensitive areas as a result of that. I'm sure. I know that was a situation at uh, Delaware Water Gap National Recreation Area back east. Um, the, the superintendent, John Donahue, before he retired, was concerned about um, these, um, I don't even know what they call them, flash mobs. You know, we're all going to meet at this location on Saturday at 10 a.m. And, and it would just be overrun and they had to close the area. Boy, we could talk forever. Um, I'm, I'm curious. You mentioned that um, you're seeing more visitation in in March, April, and May. I believe you said. Yep. Um, and I'm gonna guess that's probably going later in the fall, um, both because of the the beauty of the, the the landscape in the fall and the warmer weather with climate change. How has that affected your staffing situation? I know um, Jeff Mowat Glacier um, told me a, a year or so ago that you know the early arrival of visitors were kind of overwhelming park staff and they had some instances where restrooms were actually broken into because they hadn't opened for the season yet. Yeah. Yeah. So I think a couple of things. So I just, you know, stats here, uh, this year, our visitation in March was up 103%, April up 33%, May up 118%. And, uh, and now if you take a look at our weather, um, you'll, you would see that we had a uh, relatively mild March, April, and May and, and early meltdown of trails. Hmm. So there's, um, kind of an interesting thought in terms of, is that as we see a, uh, continue, you know, the continued impacts from a changing climate and seeing, uh, trails, uh, and areas opening up as well as, uh, you know, just mild temperatures, should we be expecting this shift in visitation in terms of earlier and earlier in the year? Now, w- with that, um, w- yeah, like Jeff, we're constrained. Um, we don't have, um, we're, we're constrained by the amount of funding that we have because every dollar that we spend on funding in March is a dollar that we don't spend on staffing in July. And we also have a due to most of our seasonal housing is not um, constructed in a way to be operated uh, below freezing temperatures. So we can't open our housing up without making a substantial investment to be able to bring the staff on board to be able to uh, meet that changing demand. Yeah. So it's an interesting you know, there's an interesting Venn diagram there in terms of more more people coming, but our all of the things that it takes in order to be able to support them, we need to have custodians and wastewater treatment plant operators and want and you know emergency services technicians and and uh, interpretive rangers to be able to help orient them, um, and that is. Uh, dependent about both in terms of being able to fund them to pay for them as well as to be able to have the housing to put them in. Yeah. Yeah. Now your neighbor to the North Yellowstone um, also has seen high visitation this year and your two parks, I believe are comparing notes and discussing the matter and, and possible ways to deal with this visitation. Have those talks advanced very far anything you can shed light on? Um, you, you, they're, they're continual and ongoing. I mean, Cam and I talk pretty frequently about um, any number of things. And then the staff at Yellowstone and the, and the staff here at Grand Teton get together and are uh, helping to share information and learn from each other. So, for example, I had uh, several people 
that went up and you know met with the Yellowstone staff and was taking a look at the automated uh, shuttle system that was operating there at Canyon. Um, they were you know getting together and taking a look at the situation at Midway, uh, you know the Midway Geyser Basin. Um, we're consulting with them and sharing on uh, what we are doing in terms of our vo- visitor mobility study, so that. Uh, so that we are gaining, you know, learning from uh, what they have done in the past. I think one of the things, you know, that we're really honing in on, right, is is the degree to which uh, do we have park-wide problems or, or do we have challenges that are at specific locations? And, how, and what does the... Um, the relative return on investment in terms of looking at either a park-wide or even a greater, you know, greater Yellowstone ecosystem um, solutions are really trying to adaptively manage on a more site-specific. And and I think you know where where we are right now is is that as I said earlier, we need to be working at multiple time scales. We also have to be working at multiple geographic scales, right? And we're, um, I think we're trying to hone in on the. Uh, uh, the specific locations uh, and understanding in greater detail the the challenges that are there and what might be solutions. Now, I also understand that uh, your partners at both the state of Wyoming and there in Jackson Hole have been working with you and your staff to kind of manage this high visitation. Is that accurate? Well, I think what, I mean, one of the things, one of the things I think that the park uh, that we did this last uh, spring as we were heading into the summer was you know, recognizing, you know, recognize, I got here in January, recognizing kind of in March and April, what is it could, that we could affect uh, during the summer and understanding that, you know, our, our greatest opportunity was to help inform people for having realistic expectations and help them in terms of their choices. So we, um, we worked really, really closely with Visit Wyoming and with uh, uh, Jackson, Visit Jackson Hole, to be able to try to, you know, to do that. And the messaging that was um, put out, and again, great credit to the hospitality and tourism industry uh, across the state of Wyoming, as well as Jackson Hole, where they pivoted. And instead of saying, come visit, come visit, it was have a plan, particularly know where you're going to spend the night, right? If you don't have a reservation, it's going to be really difficult for you to be able to find a place to stay within 120 miles, and if you're coming here, understand that you're coming to a wild ecosystem and have the expectation that you need to recreate responsibly. And that includes respecting wildlife, um, uh, respecting other people, and cleaning up after yourself. Chip, definitely some challenging times at Grand Teton in terms of visitation. It'll be um, very interesting to look forward to seeing what the data shows you and, and how you can use that to better manage um, visitation in Grand Teton and, and make that visitor experience the best it can be. Thanks, Kurt. I think Grant, one of the things that we're really aware of is that Grand Teton is not alone. This is something that we are facing, not just across the National Park Service, but actually across many areas of public lands. And we all need to continue to be learning, uh, learning from each other uh, in order to be able to figuring out the best path forward. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, I'll be joined by Lynn Riddick and Kim O'Connell to discuss the role the National Parks Traveler has served for the past 16 years and why we need your support to ensure the Traveler 
is around for many more years to inform you of environmental, scientific, and newsworthy developments surrounding, involving, and affecting national parks and their governing bodies. And we really do need your charitable support. That's not merely a fundraising slogan. We'll explain why next week. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides a background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.